This is a story about a dude named Lane. He moved to the mainland and bought one place to stay. And then one day he went and tried to rent them out. And then he became one real investor man. Hey guys, this is Lane with the Simple Passive Cashflow Podcast. Today we're going to be talking about a pretty important topic. Uh, something as we close out the year and we're planning to kind of what we're going to do next year. Uh, a lot of you guys have been asking me, you know, how do I sort of, you know, manage my liquidity? And I've kind of mentioned before that I try and keep a very small amount of liquidity on hand, maybe about ten, twenty thousand dollars um around. But what I do is I have an opportunity fund that I stuff a lot more funds um so I'm able to go into syndication deals as they come up. Um but still make a little bit of a yield in the process. Um so if you guys have been seeing um, a lot of my newsletter emails this past year, and you guys can sign up for that at simplepassivecashflow.com backslash club, um, you guys can get access to that. In addition, I'm going to be starting to do quarterly uh, investor letters, sort of like Warren Buffett style. Um, I thought month, I tried to do it monthly and then it got paid too much. So I'm going to start to do them quarterly. Um, so that should be coming out here in a bit. Uh, again, sign up for that simplepassivecashflow.com backslash club. But in there, I've got this uh, diagram of a pyramid, and it's it's slowly changed over time. It's supposed to be my opinion on what somebody with a half a million dollar portfolio should be investing in. Um, by no means is it like the rule, right? I mean, it, it's sort of got turnkey rentals on the bottom, and then it has like a multifamily class C, then it has some, you know, more riskier stuff on the top side, you know, maybe some developments in there at the very top. But that's after you have a good base of cash flow. Um, that's the pretty much the premise. You know, some people will hear, you know, something that they hear and they follow to a T, right? You know, some people have on their websites like, oh, they're gonna do an asset allocation mix of four percent international, thirty-five percent domestic, and then this and that. And um, you know, by no means is that diagram. Um, what what you should do or what I do personally either. I mean, it's just sort of like an idea of kind of spreading it around. Again, diversification four ways with different assets, different operators, different geographic locations and business plans is kind of the, what I'm trying to shoot for. But anyway, if you, on the side of that diagram, there's something called an on-deck circle. And I use the baseball analogy of, you know, the, the guy getting ready to get up to bat as the, um, the on-deck circle, or I guess in this case, we'll call it the opportunity fund because that's really what it is. Um, in that circle or opportunity fund, I'll pull funds from two sources. Of course, there's the normal liquidity and you know emergency fund, which you know I always, I think the Susie Orman types, they always tell you have like three to six months of cash reserves. But, um, <clears throat> you know, I think that's kind of kiddie stuff. You know, for investors, it's not really... Um, emergency funds it's more opportunity funds in case you know a good deal comes along and you know you already put 30 50 grand out for that and you know you need to get some funds somewhere else other than borrowing money from a buddy or something like that you don't really want to do that so here's what i do for my opportunity fund i kind of use two uh investments uh first life insurance whole whole life overfunded life insurance we've talked about this in the past and um, we're going to have in this podcast day and also in webinar form, if you guys want to check out the YouTube site and the, or the website, I've got the, the video audio, audio version for all of this stuff. I mean, if it's kind of getting confusing over the podcast form, 
Um, and that's how most of the podcasts are these days. I, I recorded a video, um, also have the audio, and then the um, I'll type up show notes too for it. So what I'll do with the life insurance, um, I started this a couple of years ago. I kind of got ambitious and I put 50 grand into it right off the bat. Unfortunately, the way these things work, a lot of the fees go off to um, you know leave you day one. So all their cool calculations that they show you never take into account the opportunity costs. So for example, if you put in a hundred grand the first year um, with a plan to put a hundred grand, you know, in the first five to six years, um, in that first year, thirty grand of it, about thirty percent of it, will be going to fees. So nobody calculates the opportunity costs. If you could have took that thirty thousand dollars and invested in, say, a turnkey rental, that would have grown sort of exponentially from that point so that's what i, I kind of you know started um, a couple of years ago i put put 50 grand in and i got thirty five thousand dollars of uh, cash value to be able to pull out um, as a loan sort of like a heloc but in my eyes i think it's better than a heloc because of the asset protection you get and it's just a lot you know the, the helocs i always kind of believe that they can kind of pull that in any moment from you um, so anyway, uh, we'll be going to that webinar. And um, also, I also use the uh, more American Home Preservation or AHP. And if you guys want to check that out, simplepassivecashflow.com backslash AHP. If you guys haven't heard of that, you've been living under a rock this last couple of years. They ceased to sponsor the podcast. And um, they used to give 12% a year, uh, 1% paid monthly. Um, they had to drop that a little bit down to 10% a year because um, they got too popular and um, getting a little bit more institutional. But I think it's still a pretty good deal, um, especially when you with their liquidity. And um, I'm going to get the CEO on here in this podcast uh, to kind of talk about the differences between the first fund and the and this current fund. And then, you know, what are those those sort of um, you know what are the, sort of the guidance on you know can you withdraw the money whenever you need. Um, basically they don't want you to treat it like a, a checking account, but we'll get into that here in a bit. But, um, you know, in, in other news, um, I've been invited to uh, speak at a multifamily investor nation summit coming up January 17th through the 19th. It's a three day online packed event, but multifamily investors where you hear from over 50 speakers. And I think we'll have over a thousand attendees. So uh, go to apartmentevent.com, grab your ticket and use my promo code L A N E or lane to get $100 off the uh, event. Again, that's apartmentevent.com. And uh, I'll be speaking on Saturday because you know I gotta go work on Thursday and Friday. So um, you guys can hear me there. And if you, if you guys got any ideas of what I should talk about, let me know. Um, so we'll get started with this, um, the content of this podcast. Again, talking about the, my opportunity fund. Two parts in this. Um, I think the first part we'll talk about here is I'll go ahead and play uh, webinar, short webinar that I did with Dan, who's the CEO at HP, talking about the differences between the old fund and the new fund. All right, enjoy, guys. Bye. If you're listening to this podcast and implementing the strategies discussed, you're likely to become financially free in three to seven years, whether or not you choose to use my coaching services or not. For most of you I talk to in our free intro coaching calls, I see a theme of mission and investing for greater good. I found an investment that pays 20% of their revenue to improving the lives of their community by improving living conditions and paying for children's education. 
To learn more about this investment, check out Simple Passive Cashflow backslash coffee. And by the way, it's not all altruistic. This specialty coffee makes for an amazing performer. Hey, Simple Passive Cashflow listeners. Today is going to be a real short presentation on the differences of this new AHP fund. A lot of us did it. What was it, Dan? Like 2000 and what was the first one? 2015, right? 16. So the last one was 2015 A plus, and that was actually ran from 2016 to May of 2018. Yeah. The, the, yeah. The, so I jumped in the first one a couple of years back and I've been using it ever since. And in case you guys are wondering, that's not George there. George went and hired a boss. <laughs> and so she's sitting in there today. Good to see you, Dan. Great to yeah. see you too. We're going to kind of talk to the differences since there was a lot of confusion and you know some of the logos are different. HP servicing is what it's called now. It used to be called just HP. Kind of get going through this deck. Let's just go through the differences here and then I'll kind of chime in with questions that people have had. Sure. So happy to do that. And um, Lane, do you want me to explain any of the changes to the name of the company or does your audience have that background? Yeah, why don't you kind of go over that just so people no. Where did, where did George go? Did he disappear? <laughs> right. He's not in witness protection program. He still is one of the principal uh, shareholders of the company, and he's also the chairman of the board. You know, Lane, as you mentioned earlier, he stepped out of the day-to-day operations. So in March of this year, he brought me in as the president and CEO of AHP and AHP Servicing. And that was really to kind of put the structure in place to scale the business and also to start the servicing company. Previously, we had serviced our loans with third parties, and George wasn't really happy with the job that any of them were doing. He tested out half a dozen different servicers. And so we reached the conclusion that we think we've got it figured out and we can do a better job ourselves. In 2018, we set up the servicing company, went live on pilot with our own loans in August, and by the beginning of November had brought the majority of our loans in-house, and now we've started servicing for third-party investors as well. And so that's the reason that the new offering is going out under HP servicing, because that's really, if you think it's the sister company, but it's the company that will continue to build the organization and the platform under. Right. Because it's sort of become more of an, instead of just an investment company, but an operations company where you've got the people in the office making the calls to the people, right? That's right. And we feel like that's much better fit for our social mission because we're genuinely trying to keep homeowners in their home after we buy the debt. And most of the servicers that we worked with, because they don't have that social responsibility, we just felt like they weren't giving the same level of time and attention to our borrowers that we think we can do for ourselves. Yeah, because I think I was out there what, in March and you guys had just about starting up the roles of all the computers and the call centers. What, right. what, is your, what is the kind of the fundamental difference between like your average servicer I forget what the names of the popular ones are out there and you guys, like what specifically, is this something in the call scripts or just what's the difference? Yeah. So that's a really great question and it runs the gamut. First of all, we're, I think a much more tech enabled company. So we have an out of the box servicing platform, which everybody else does as well. But then we, we built this proprietary skin on top of it. That's very interactive with our vendor partners and with our borrowers 
as well as with our third-party servicing clients that we're starting to take on. So we think that that full utilization of technology is one of the differentiators for our company. And then you're right, everything from the initial outreach to our borrowers to, you know, kind of making these decisions where we're doing the right thing for our investor, for the company, for the borrower, for the servicing client. It means that you're not always kind of squeezing that last dollar out of a modification or a discounted payoff, but you're getting a quick consensual resolution. So one of the things we did this summer is we took a look at for 2015 A+, plus, which is the most recent fund before this one, what were the borrower outcomes? In about 30% of the cases, we're having to file a foreclosure action versus having some kind of a consensual resolution to the loan that we purchase. And the typical bank or the typical investor, that foreclosure rate may be, there are no stats because I've looked at them, but it would be maybe 80 or 90%, right? So where the majority of the time, somebody else is just going to move to foreclosure when a loan is 90 days past due, we're actively working to find that um, solution and making foreclosure our last resort. And we really think that's better for everybody. We get quick, fast solutions. It's better for the borrower. They can settle their debt or modify it. And it's better for the community as well because you don't have a vacant home kind of sitting there becoming dilapidated in this neighborhood because nobody wants to own a home where the home next door is is unkempt and abandoned. And for those actual note investors out there that operate in, in their own facet, getting a few notes here and there, they can actually engage with you guys to do the, the servicing for them, right? Correct. And, you know, I think one of the areas that we're really set apart as a servicer is because we're also investors. We know what they're looking for, right? They're making that investment and they're looking to get that return on the investments so that they can then use the proceeds to either get cash flow from that asset or to turn it around and invest in a new asset. So having a servicing partner that you can buy loans from, sell loans to, who understands your mindset, I think is going to be really powerful over time. All right, all right. So let's get into this, um, the actual fund, which is really what we're kind of talking about here today. Yeah. On the left, we've got the old fund and then the new one. Maybe we'll just go line by line, just point out the differences here. Yeah, absolutely. This first page that we've got up is actually the similarities. And so they're both SEC qualified reggae offerings. So crowdfunded, when somebody makes an investment in the offering, they get an equity investment. We continue to allow them to invest with as little as $100. It's still open to both accredited and non-accredited investors, and those two elements are really foundational for our belief that we should be making attractive alternative assets available to, to everybody in the marketplace. Our distributions are still paid on a monthly basis. We still have best efforts, liquidity, competitive returns. Do you want to flip to the next slide so that you're no, no differences on this page, guys. No differences. <laughs> yep. Everything's the same. Offering size is again, 50 million. And so with 2015 A plus, we actually raised about 35 and a half million. So far, since we opened this new offering with HPS, we've been raising about a million dollars a week. So off to a really great start. If that run rate continues, we think we'll hit that full 50 million late 2019 to early 2020. So we do expect this one will be fully subscribed. We do continue to have a best efforts liquidity with no lockup period. So if something changes, we will use best efforts to redeem your shares. So I think that's the that's the one of the biggest appeals that personally I like this uh, the fund. You got other funds out there where they lock your money up for at least a couple of years, but 
there's that big quote right there, right? This best efforts. And maybe we can kind of talk about that a little bit. I mean, is it more as, as money comes in, you're able to let people out? I mean, but the intention is that not people don't just use this as a three month float account, right? Yeah. So you're exactly right. And we'll talk on one of the next slides. We talk a little bit more about some of the nuances that have changed, but I love the best efforts piece as well. I think it's great for investors, especially because I think at this point in the market cycle and the overall U.S. economy, we're predicting, I should say the pundits are predicting a recession in 2020, right? Well, we hope people put it in and they can keep it there forever. We understand that circumstances change. The way we handle the best efforts is we always keep some cash on hand, right? So we're not going to be 100% invested so that we can make sure we have money available for operating expenses, for monthly distributions, and we forecast the likely redemptions in any given month. So we kind of look at what the historical numbers are. How does that change as the fund ages? And we try to keep sufficient cash on hand to meet most of those. Now, occasionally we'll get somebody who will be a, big, a very big investor. And in that situation, we may need to redeem that over longer than a 30-day period. And we'll work with them based on what their needs in their particular situation is. But in general, we try to redeem within about 30 days of the request. Yeah. And just to give you an idea, what I'm kind of telling my guys is I'm using this as sort of an opportunity fund. I put money in here, but I sort of draw money on my life insurance, my infinite banking first. And this is kind of that second stopgap in case, you know, really good deal comes up after another good deal and kind of draws me out that way. But I haven't taken money out. I took money out once, I think late last year, you guys did it in like two or three weeks for me. And then I replenished the money before the 2015A closed, and I'm really trying not to touch the money. <laughs> yeah, you know what? And I think that's smart because when you look at the return, right, that 10% return, and you compare that to what the stock market is doing and the bond market and what you get in a money market fund, I research every crowdfunded company that I come across because I'm always interested in what are our competitors doing and what are they paying. It's very hard to find any alternative crowdfunded company that pays that double digit return and pays it consistently and still has some liquidity. Right. I mean, I remember when I first met George a couple of years ago, I told him that 12% was a little bit too high and it kind of sounds like a scam because it is so high. Um, I told him the same thing when I was interviewing for the CEO job because it created this impression that it was a higher risk investment than it actually was. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think even at 10%, I mean, for the liquidity, I mean, you can't beat it, in my opinion. Thank you. I agree. So other things in terms of similarities and differences, the term length is still five years. And what that means is, you know, so Lane, if you make an investment or when you make an investment, we're trying to return your individual principal within five years of you making that investment. And so I make that distinction because some people think it's within five years of launching the fund. Other people think it's within five years of closing the fund, but it's within five years of the individual investor making that investment. So uh, if you're in the, the original fund, you, you're going to get your money back in five years and the fund will likely close. Is that kind of what's happening? Yeah, typically the fund will liquidate over time. And so, you know, sort of three to four years after the launch of the initial fund, we'll make sure that we're planning and taking advantage of market opportunities to sell loans at a premium and then kind of waterfall the return of the investor principal. But, you know, likely investors will roll right into the newer, the current fund 
But what about the assets in the old fund? Will the new fund buy those assets? Will there be a little of that going on? They can. And historically, George did some of that. So successive funds would buy trailing assets in some of the older funds. And that'll just depend on market conditions, right? Because we want to make sure that if we're buying them, we're buying them at a fair market value. So we'll evaluate whether it makes the most sense based on what's going on in the market and the liquidity of the future funds to either sell them in the open market or sell them to the sister offering. Makes sense. Still the the social responsible focus and the uh, correlated returns to the stock market. Yeah, I, so- I think that's the big thing with, with you guys is non-performing notes, right? Like in theory, it does well in a bad market. That's exactly right. And that's one of the things that I really like is that our returns are not correlated to the stock market and they're really not correlated to the economy either. Because you know, when you think about what happens in a recession, foreclosure rates increase, banks are trying to move those loans and get them off their balance sheet so that it makes their balance sheet look healthier. And so that creates more buying opportunity for us and more opportunity to work with homeowners and potentially more opportunities to do additional offerings if there's a lot coming onto the market at one time. So we're not afraid of a recessionary environment. Next slide here in terms of other key differences. Uh, You mentioned this earlier, Lane. The last offering was uh, issued by American Homeowner Preservation, and this offering is issued by AHP Servicing, which now includes all of our employees. We manage our own servicing, and we manage the portfolio for both 2015A Plus and for AHPS, as well as handling some portfolios for third parties. Other difference, the last one paid a preferred 10% return. This one pays a preferred 10% return, which I feel is still top of the market in terms of what our competitors are offering. But to your point earlier, I think it's more appropriate to the maturity of the company because the reality is AHP celebrated its 10-year anniversary in May. So it's very much a proven product now versus kind of a proof of concept with some of the earlier offerings. And then I would like to talk a little bit about the changes to the best efforts liquidity. To encourage folks not to treat it like a money market fund, we do adjust the returns if somebody redeems in the first two years. If you redeem in the first year, we'll adjust that annual return from 10% to 8%. And if you redeem in the second year, we'll adjust from 10% to 9%. And if you keep it in the fund for two or more years, then you get that full 10% return. Right. Here's what I say. Like if you're worried about like losing a point or two because you weren't able to manage your liquidity, that's your own fault. You really shouldn't be using this as a put in here for six months and then go to something else. Yeah, I I think that's right. (laughs) (laughs) The first one was six months, it would go down a point and then another six points or six months, you would get back another point. This one's sort of similar, you know, maybe dips on the eight, but you know, who, if you're, you're sweating over 2%, you're going to get a life, I think. Yeah, well, also when you look at some of the other alternatives that would have the liquidity, right, most of those are returning 5 to 8%. So we're still, you know, even if somebody has to redeem within the first year, we're still offering a better return that they might get in some of the alternatives like some of the peer-to-peer lending platforms. Other thing that I talk about in terms of a difference in liquidity is that we do have the ability to limit redemptions to not more than 25% of the fund in a given year and not more than 25% of the investors' total shares. And for that second one, the only time I think that may come into play is when we get a very large 
redemption request. So, you know, we get people who invest half a million dollars and we just want them to be aware that depending on how fully invested we are, that may not be a 30 day redemption. Yeah. And that's nice that you actually mentioned that everything kind of changes here and there, right? You guys reserve the right, but would you say like, if a guy's just putting in 50 to a hundred thousand dollars, they kind of fly under the radar. I think that's right. Okay. And for the guys who don't have never even heard about AHP or kind of been living under the rock for the last couple of years and just totally disregarding all the podcasts ads out there that I've been doing talking about this thing. Cause I still have, it still happens. I have calls with people. People are like, what's an HP? I'm like, really? Like, <laughs> <laughs> so this is a little bit different than like a mutual fund or your, your run of the mill, like fund out there that's put on by Fidelity or Vanguard. I think when I first started to invest in this thing, it was a little bit off the beaten path, right? It's it's still regulated and you can, I mean, how, how are investors out there, how would they go about doing their due diligence on their side? You know, how do they know that this is just not a, just some random fund that doesn't really exist that you're just doing a big Ponzi scheme on? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm glad that you asked that. So uh, we have a lot of information available online. You know, one of the reasons that we are an SEC qualified reggae offering is so that our investors can be comfortable that we've gone through a robust process. The offering has been reviewed by the SEC. Our offering a statement is available directly through Edgar. It's also available on our website. If you go to our new website at ahpservicing.com, you'll find all sorts of information about the new offering. And if you go to our old website at ahpfund.com, you'll be able to see all of the documents related to that offering. And so there's a long history of 10 years here. So we also show both in our offering statement and online how all of the prior funds have performed. You know, one of the other things that we do that I wish more of our competitors did is we um, produce audited financial statements on the company every year. And, you know, frankly, when I was interviewing with George, if he had not produced audited statements, I would not have accepted the job because coming in as the CEO, I want to be comfortable that I'm coming in with a clean set of books. And to your point, I want to be comfortable that it's not a Ponzi scheme, right? I would not look good in orange. So I think that's something that sets us apart. It creates a lot of visibility. One of the other things that sets us apart is you can always talk to a live human being. We have a great investor relations team. They're very knowledgeable. They're super hardworking. And, you know, as I continue to find out new competitors out there, I'll always check and see, do they produce audited numbers? And can I talk to a live person? And more often than not, the answer is no. And so that tells me that that's a company that's maybe not as mature in its life cycle. So therefore higher risk as an investor. All right. And I've been in this thing for the last almost couple of years and been getting, I always say that it kind of pays my car payment, but I don't have a car anymore. I gave that up. I just ride a bike around. Good for you. If you guys want to go to uh simplepassivecashflow.com backslash HP, there's probably about a couple hours of webinars and videos on there that me and George did in the last couple of years talking about what exactly are they doing in the note funding or note fund investing. So you can actually know what you're investing in. I think Deanne also mentioned Edgar, which is on the sec.gov website. And you know, those government websites, a lot of information, very hard to use and sort of impractical, but you can use that tool if you're ever so inclined to go and like pull up every single PPM out there. 
for every single deal in the world. If you're good with computers and you can program stuff, you can make a little query to pull what you need, but you know, it's all right there. And, and then you can kind of pull up the financials yourself. Exactly. So you can get it through our website or you can go get it online direct from the FCC. Anything else, Dan? I, I think we're, what's up with George? He's still in the same office doing his other, his other new business. Yeah, so he is. So he kept the old office. We moved to some new offices on my first day on the job. And he has um, started a new company to keep him out of trouble. He's the classic entrepreneur. So his new company is expected to launch in January, and that's called Debt Cleanse. And his aim there is to help uh, individual investors who are burdened by debt figure out how to get back on track. Kind of an interesting evolution, right? AHP Servicing started to help you know, borrowers and homeowners get out of debt. And so he's now taking what he's learned over the last 10 or 15 years to a wider audience and partnering with a team of attorneys that he's putting in place to help help make that possible for folks. All right. So if you guys want more information, go to uh, my website, check out those webinars. But if you're ready to invest today, go to hpservicing.com. Thanks for uh, joining us. Thank you, Lane. Appreciate it. All right, guys. See you guys next time. Bye. Are you absolutely bored at social gatherings because everyone is super passionate about their J-O-B or too shameful to get naked and talk about their finances? Been drinking the simple passive cash flow latte? Got your own coffee parcel? And feeling a little lonely? Re-engage with friends by sending them to simplepassivecashflow.com backslash start or text the word SIMPLE to 314-665-1767 to begin the free web course, The Journey to Simple Passive Cashflow so that they can get back up to speed with financial independence and investing. Again, join the web course, The Journey to Simple Passive Cashflow. Go to simplepassivecashflow.com backslash start or text the word simple to 314-665-1767. Remember, if you don't tell them now about it, who are you going to have a midday lunch with when everyone else is at the day job? Whoa! And we're back. So I hope you guys enjoyed that little uh, webinar with Dan. And, um, you know, I'm not in that newer fund. I'm still in the older fund. Um, so I've got probably about sixty, seventy thousand $70,000 in that older fund that pays us 12%. I took money out of it maybe about a couple of months ago to go into a couple of deals. And then I replenished the money right before the fund one closed. Um, because, you know, I wanted to get into that 12% interest rate um, before it closed. But, you know, they were pretty accommodating when I wanted to take the money out at that time. Um, I I will likely do um, the, the new fund when I get more liquidity. But um, right, right now, if you guys have kind of been monitoring the deal line, um, if you guys are part of the simplepassacashflow.com backslash club group, um, I've been doing a lot of deals lately, so I had to actually take some money out of my life insurance, which we'll talk about next. And um, I, I haven't quite taken any money out of HV. I haven't got into to that dire strengths. But this is how I work my opportunity fund. What I'll do is I'll take a loan from my life insurance first. Um, so there's always sort of a cash value built up. And then if once I burn through that, then I'll take money out of AHP. Again, I haven't gotten to that point yet as of this recording, but you know, that's the, sort of the concept of this opportunity fund. And 
in in theory, like I probably have got about a hundred twenty, hundred fifty thousand dollars of dry powder, if both AHP and my life insurance are fully uh, untapped, in a way. And what this is, it allows me kind of to float my liquidity back and forth, back and forth. While I'm always making, for me, twelve percent of my HP. For you guys, if you guys are new, ten percent there, and then about five percent um, in my life insurance. Again, that's tax free, which is a nice thing because it is life insurance. Um, if you guys got any questions, let me know how I do this. Um, you know, it's, it, the life insurance side is pretty complicated, in my opinion, and there's a lot of nuances like. You can kind of set it to get the um, dividends off the whole value or just the cash value you have currently. You know, so when you take a loan, that, that cash value will dwindle down. Um, but you know, hopefully a lot of this next webinar, it's going to be almost an hour long on the, on the subject, will help clear, clarify that. And um, you know, if you guys ever need a warm intro to any of these guys, um, you know, the HP folks, um, and if you guys need a direct contact there or, you know, if you want a referral for the life insurance, let me know. Um, I'm always kind of, you know, okay doing that. Um, you know, again, my name, my email is lane at simple passive cash flow. And um, we'll go ahead and play the life insurance webinar. Um, so you guys can get um, situated that of course there's coaching and I don't really like to spend too much time on the phone, um, you know, giving out free advice because I just don't have time for that. A lot of time, the calls these days are just to get it, get to know each other and um, see if you're a good fit for the investor club. Um, but you know, you guys who invest, you guys have noticed that I'm, you know, when you guys invest in the deal, you guys pretty much get free um, calls with me. I mean, I think most of you guys who are in the investor club investing in active deals, um, you know, if you guys are putting in 50, a hundred grand, I mean, I'm more than willing to getting on the phone with you guys, you know, once or twice a year, just kind of hearing what's up, what's up, you know, kind of helping out, giving you different, different viewpoints, the way I see it. And, um, you know, that's, that's kind of my way of giving back, you know, especially when, you know, you guys invest a whole bunch more money, I think $200,000, $250,000 these days is kind of the threshold to get into that mastermind club and you guys can get more details at simple backslash mastermind but enough of that um again check out the uh, apartment vet invent.com and um sign up there for the um use my promo code lane you guys can check it out that out but again here is the life insurance webinar uh enjoy guys and um we'll see you guys next time bye All right. Hey, Simple Passive cash flow listeners. Today, we're going to talk about life insurance, but not that normal kind of life insurance that you hear about term life and all this other, you know, I think a lot of them are kind of scams in my opinion. I'm going to talk about this form of life insurance where it's, it's called many things. We're going to be kind of calling it wealth formula banking, but it's also known as infinite banking or banking from yourself or whole life overfunded is another kind of form of it. Basically what it is, is something that I do to help me smooth out my liquidity streams. And it allows me to stuff money into my life insurance and I can take a loan out from it from time to time when I need it. And then I recontribute the money back when I have a little bit more cash. We'll kind of go over it today. I've got the experts on the line, Rod and Christian. 
You guys there? Yeah, we're here. here. Thanks for having us, Lane. We're excited to be here. This is kind of what we do full time, all day, every day. So we'll jump into a little bit more detail. And our hope is that by the time we're done, people feel like they've got a pretty good idea of where the this banking concept might fit. And yeah, so that's great. Yeah, so let's let's kind of I'll kind of kick you guys off here. I think the first thing that people always feel like are guys are always trying to sell them stuff, and this is kind of no different in sure. a way. I mean, it's life insurance. There's some fees associated, but yeah. there's a big tool to this kind of a thing. And maybe tell us a little bit about the difference between the whole term life, whole life, and what this is, and how is it? You know, there's all this tech talk about tax free and stuff like sure. that. Yeah, and we'll get into a little more detail on on some more specifics on whole life, but but the big difference between whole life and term insurance is that the the term insurance is is really it's pure insurance, right? So just like your auto insurance, you you pay your bill. If you get in a wreck, they're going to cover you. If you on the life insurance side with term insurance, if you die, they're going to cover you. But you know that may be a ten year term, maybe a twenty year term. When that time is up, then the the insurance goes away. Chances are right if, if statistics play out, then Hopefully you don't die, right? We're not we're not planning or hoping that that happens. On the whole life side, especially the way that we we use it, is we're taking a totally different approach to it. We want to use the the cash value. We want to make that cash grow just as much as possible. And again, we'll get into a lot of the details and, and the whys and the hows. But the idea is that we're using not not as a, a pure insurance play, but as uh, as a, a tool that we can use to enhance the investing that we're doing. Maybe another way to put it is we're going to be focusing rather in this situation, rather than focusing on the death benefit, we're actually going to be focusing on the living benefits that optimally overfunded life insurance can provide. So term insurance is great, right? I never want people, I never want to suggest that there's no value in that. There certainly is. In this case, though, again, we're going to be focusing on how to use it as an investor, how to use it to create more cash flow. We're even going to get into an example where we show how utilizing this banking concept compares with just, you know, using, putting my liquid money in the bank and doing investing that way. So we have some numbers that we can even use to just kind of give a conservative, better understanding of what it does from a pure financial standpoint, right? Because here's my thought on this is why would you do it unless it literally creates more money for you, right? And that's what we want to make sure that people understand is that the value proposition is that we're going to literally create more money by doing this. So if I'm an investor and I'm going to be investing in the, the various things that I use, what we're suggesting is, is that it's not one of those things where we're going to say, hey, let's put some of that investment money in the life insurance policy. Rather, what we're going to do is we're going to use those two simultaneously. And the idea is that this, what we're talking about, will enhance the investing that we're doing by creating literally more more dollars and cents over time. So that's kind of what we're going to get into. In fact, what I, I I liked your kind of introduction on the way that you use it, Lane, because the purpose of wealth formula banking, it's really how cash flow investors enhance the investing that they're already doing, right? So I probably said that a couple of different times, but that's what we're going to be getting into. We'll start with the vehicle itself and kind of dive in so that we have a little bit better understanding. Like you said, this isn't the life insurance that you get when you go down to the local Northwestern mutual shop and they, you know, you're looking for $250,000 of death benefit. Here, we're going to change that up completely. So we're going to get into the vehicle, talk about how it grows, talk about the taxation. We're going to talk about 
some of the other characteristics there. Then after we've gotten into the vehicle part of it, we're going to turn and jump into the strategy and that way we can kind of mesh those two and we'll finish it off by having a conversation and talking through an actual example. So that's kind of what we have planned. Does that, does that work for you, Lane? Yeah, yeah. And, and I'll, I'll say, like, I'll emphasize it one more time. You know, this, this thing is not for the life insurance payout, really. I mean, that's yeah, it. yeah, it's there. And, right. and then you guys, you know, it's fine and dandy and all. But this is for liquidity and getting a little bit of return on your money while it's in there. Yeah. And it's it, kind of funny, you know, some of my uh, my friends, they, you know, when they heard that I was kind of doing this kind of stuff, they're like, oh, you should talk to my life insurance friend. Inevitably, <laughs> there's like everybody is like a life insurance broker out there, it seems like, just like how everybody's a, a lending broker. But so I talked to a couple guys that supposedly had, you know, were quote unquote, oh, these are smart guys, but they didn't have a clue what this stuff was. They were just trying to stuff me in like, index stuff they just didn't get it they're like well why do you, you know you're only getting like five percent with this you want higher i'm like no you don't get it we're doing this for the liquidity for yeah. the cat the ability to take out that cash value and to go invest it and they're well, like no you want to invest in this stuff I'm like no dude you don't get it yeah it's a great point i think yeah it's, it's not about the underlying investment return that's there and we're going to talk about what you can expect to get in the policy but like you said this is where we're going to use this to replace the bank, right? So again, if I'm investing and I need to save up capital, well, where am I putting that capital? Hopefully it's not in the bank. And then on the other hand, well, what if I put it into the market, like a brokerage account or something like that? Not necessarily a bad thing, but I don't know what's going to be there when I need to use it, right? So the value here is that it's really predictable. You know what you're going to get. And so, yeah, we'll, we'll jump into some of those things. And one of the first questions that, that we get asked is, how does the policy, the underlying policy itself grow? So I'm going to talk about that first, and maybe I'll back up really quickly before I jump into that and just say this. Like you suggested, Lane, the whole concept here is that we've got to put way more money into the policy than what it would generally require. That's why we use this concept of overfunded. We want to essentially, and we do absolutely keep the fees and cost as low as possible and we put in the maximum amount that will go to cash. Again, we can get into this in some more detail, but it's really critical that the design is right in order to generate the return and in order to make sure you have cash value quickly that can be used right after you start the program, right as you start uh, using the strategy. So, okay, with that said, how do we get the return? Whole life insurance generates a return in two, two places. First one is through a guaranteed interest rate. 4% is standard across the industry. We just know we're going to get 4% guaranteed contractual. The second part is the... Yeah, is maybe, the, maybe let's, let's dig into that a little bit. Yeah. And I think one time you, you described it pretty well. Like this thing has been around since the Civil War or something. You're talking... and. and and I guess, why is that? What are, who are these people? You know, these like the insurance companies that are investing yeah. in our state building, right? Institutional kind of investments. Yeah. Especially with these whole life policies, essentially what we're doing is, is we're kind of riding the backs of the, the, what the companies are investing in, which are a lot of bonds, right? There's a lot of fixed stuff, long-term, long-term stuff. So if you think about just the nature of a life insurance company, 
a 40-year-old gets a policy, it's a permanent policy, they're going to have that for 50 years, right, before it pays out. The insurance company's got to be really smart with the way that they manage their funds. So so they're, they're uh, investing in fixed stuff, right, predictable stuff, and again, really long-term. And so if you think about between the guarantee plus the dividend, you know, right now, six six and a half percent well you can't go down and get that at the bank right it's been a long time since since banks have been able to, to pay that kind of rate but but the insurance companies can because because the stuff they're invested in is, is really well, long term and the dividend it, it comes out in i mean there's three components to the dividend right so a lot of people think it's just about the return first off these are companies that have been around like you said for 150 plus years right one of our favorite companies started in 1847, has paid a, paid a dividend in every year of its history. So the reality is, is we're dealing with companies that have an incredibly long track record of being profitable. And again, it's it's super impressive when you consider that we're talking about through going through the Great Depression, we're talking about world wars, obviously a variety of different economic situations. So from that standpoint, like we're dealing with companies that have just, they just know how to do it. And, and so maybe the next thing to talk about is that dividend where, like Rod said, right now I can expect to get another maybe 2 to 2.5%. Two so when I look at the overall return inside the policy, we tell people it's reasonable and you should expect a 5 to 6% return based on the dividends today. Now, one of the nice things here is that dividends are kind of at a historical low. Now, now that may not be nice, but the powerful part is that as interest rates rise, dividend rates will rise with it. Let me just kind of finish off this, the three parts to the, the act, what actually make the dividend go. So the first one is the way that the insurance company operates their business, right? So anybody that, ha that knows business or has a business realizes that you've got to generate a profit, right? So here, what they have is just their regular operations, running a business that's smart, well-run and generates profit. The second one is how they manage mortality expenses, right? So one of the big jobs of an insurance company is to price products so that it can be a win both for the insurance company and a win for the consumer. So what's happening here is they have to be smart in the way that they manage the mortality and, and those kind of things. Then finally, the third one is what Rod alluded to. That's the actual underlying investments. And those are generally going to be fixed investments that are long-term that you can that they can use to generate at an institutional level. They can use to generate consistent, predictable returns ongoing. So anyway, that's kind of what makes up the return. And like I said, we've got an incredible track record of util or, or of dividends paying out and being strong and consistent. Okay, so hey, Lane, is there any other questions from your side on? maybe the interest in dividend before I move on to some of the tax components? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just important to point out for the folks that, again, don't hold me to the fire if anything happens, <laughs> but I'm, you know, I'm pretty fairly confident that this, the, the stability of this contract that you're going to get this return year after year after year is pretty dang stable. I mean, it's, it's, it's something that's new, but I would consider it as stronger, way stronger than any money market account out there or even putting the in the bank at their 0.01% or whatever they offer. Yeah, it's I think it's a, I think it's a great point. I mean, well, let's put it this way. We all know that the government, ha they have never defaulted on anything like this, right? Or anything from the bank. However, we also know that they're covering 
an enormous amount of debt. And so at some point, you have to just logically ask ourselves the question, would I rather have my money in a place that's backed by the government that's that's really, like I say, they're, they're, it's buried in debt, or I could work with an insurance company. In this example, we're talking about companies that have an incredible amount of capitalization. In fact, for every dollar that they owe out to a policyholder in the form of cash value or death benefit, they have to carry that same exact dollar in reserve. So what's happening here is you've got, again, if we're comparing to banks, you've got a really high, highly capitalized insurance company that has an incredible amount of cash on hand, whereas the bank is using leverage. Now, we, we love leverage, right? We want to use it ourselves for, as an, an investment tool, but I, I don't know if I want to be sticking my money in a place where they're dealing as much in that way. So again, we're not trying to replace the bank completely. What we're suggesting here is that the money that I would be using for investments could be better utilized, particularly while it's outside of the investment inside the policy. And then what we're going to do is we're going to get into some of the really cool concepts that can be used and talk about how I can get the value in the policy and be getting simultaneous value outside of it from the, from the actual investment. So that'll be kind of a fun overview that we'll hit into here pretty quick. Um, right. So like it's, you know, the bank's going to fail before your insurance policy stops paying this, this return on it. I sure I, I believe that 100%. And, you know, I am biased because this is what I do, but the, the economics of it would suggest that that's absolutely true. Certainly an insurance company, especially these mutual companies that we use, which means it's owned by the policyholders, right? These, again, companies that have been around forever, extremely safe. So, yeah, I, I wouldn't feel – there's no place that I'd feel more comfortable putting money than with one of these institutions. They They tend to be the – most solid financial institutions in the world. So yeah, that's kind of what we're using on that side. So the next feature here is this whole tax-free benefit. And I think this is kind of where, as the investor or the policyholder user, you kind of um, take advantage of the government in a little loophole in a way. Yeah, 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 there's no question. I mean, basically what we have here is an identical tax situation to what I get from a Roth IRA. Now, in a Roth, though, I have some limitations, right? I've got a limitation on how much I can put in it, and I have a limitation on if I make too much money, I just can't use it all of a sudden. Well, in the life insurance world, just like in a Roth IRA, we're going to put after-tax money in. It's going to grow, and it's going to be completely tax-free when we bring it back out. And we'll get into, again, we'll get, we can get into more detail on that, but basically we're going to use a combination of bringing our actual cash back out in loans. And by doing that, we can keep that policy completely tax-free. And then what happens if I have a loan outstanding by the time I pass away, that death benefit will just come in and repay it. So really, any way we shake it, it's gonna, we're going to make sure that the policy stays completely tax-free and will be identical to a Roth. But again, I don't have the limitations on my income or the amounts I can contribute. I mean, we have clients who put hundreds of thousands of dollars a year into it. And, and, and then, of course, we have clients that put $5,000 a year into it. So it can really be fit to a variety of situations. The core thing to remember from a tax standpoint is that it's after-tax money going in, and it's going to grow, and I'm going to bring it back out tax-free. And, and so if you believe, like most people do, that taxes are more likely to go up than down, then that's obviously, you know, it's kind of a no-brainer from that perspective. So, yeah, it's, it's really cool that way. So this, this is the kind of stuff, like, this is a prime example of, like, hey, this is what the wealthy are doing because 
you know, this is just not what the regular people do. And the, what the wealthy have found out, maybe talk just a little bit about the, the changes and like how the tax codes are done so that the people in politics were able to stuff money in this thing tax-free. Yeah. And, and from that standpoint, I mean, it, it's been around for a long time. Some, some of the tools, some of the ways that we use it, like you said, are, are, are a little bit newer, but this concept of, of putting money into a cash value life insurance policy has been around for a long time. And, and the benefit, the kind of this tax favorability that, it, that it's attached to it has been around for a long time. So cool. we're going to maximize that just as much as we can. And, and like you said, it's a tool that the wealthy have been using for a long time. And because of that, it's probably, there's a high likelihood that that's going to stay there and be effective, right? Because a lot of the people who are going to be voting on rules as it pertains to life insurance are people who actually use it in an effective way. Yeah, we always talk about how some of these incredibly wealthy people that their names that we know, Rothschilds and Romney's. Yeah. Romney Romney had like a super huge million dollar plus Roth IRA. And it's like, well, how the heck do you do that? You can only put $6,000 a year. (laughs) Yeah, there's ways to get around that too. But really, that's what they're doing, right? And so I have yet to, to meet with a client that has a $10 $10 million net worth or beyond that's not very actively utilizing life insurance in some way. So it's kind of one of those things where it, it's kind of an under the radar thing in the sense that there's still not a lot of people that know about it. And I think the reason is just because we get pumped so much with the Wall Street stuff from, you know, you're not going to see very many commercials for most of the mutual companies that we use. That's just not the way that we work. It's a little different, little different world that way. So yeah, anyway, that it, it's been one of those tools. The wealthy have been using it for years and years. And our hope is that we can show people who are interested or intrigued how to use it in the exact same way to generate more wealth. Yeah, so the, that 4 5 6% return, that's tax-free because the loophole is that it's in a life insurance policy. Is that how it, it's kind of viewed as from the tax code standpoint? Yeah, so life insurance. We I often talk. We often talk about how um, there's a couple of benefits just that just exist from life insurance. And the biggest thing is is that I can put money in there, and I can as long as it stays in the policy, I can I don't have to worry about paying taxes on it. Now, when we get to a place where we might be taking money back out, this might be a little bit more detailed than a lot of people uh, want to. But I'll just really describe it quickly. We do it in two ways. The first way is that we can use our basis. This is really actually unique to life insurance too. Most vehicles that have any tax benefits, when we put them in, we get that tax benefit, but when I take it out, I normally have to take out the first, the first dollar has to be the growth, so I end up having to pay taxes on it. In life insurance, it's actually flip-flopped. We call it first in, first out, which just means the money that I put into it, I can pull back out. So if I've made a, if I've contributed, let's say $200,000 over a, 10-year period or whatever that the number is, before I have to pay any taxes, even if I were to just withdraw the money, I can pull out that 200000 I took into it. Now, the next level for us is once we've done that, we're actually going to move to taking out, to utilizing loans. And that goes back to that concept where I talked about using a loan. Well, let's put it this way. It sounds a little backward, maybe. It sounds a little obscure to hear the, the concept of loan and bringing income out. But in the reality, what normally happens is that during a person's working career, they're going to use this strategy and they're going to actively move money in and out of the policy. And then what we want to do is create a situation where it can basically be a Roth IRA bringing out 
cash flowing tax free income in retirement for those people who want and need that extra cash flow. So it really has kind of a dual purpose from that standpoint. And I don't want to forget, I mean, we hit on this earlier, but there's also death benefit and long-term care benefit. Like yeah, I said, let's I won't stay, get let's into stay that. on this whole, like taking the money out the liquidity portion, because that's really the whole point of doing it. So yeah, that's it, great. So what I'm doing today with my policy, I stuff like 60,000 in there because I feel like that's a good amount. That's a substantial amount of cash that I can kind of use to smooth out my liquidity. So I put in 60 and, you know, we'll kind of get to this later, how you don't get that full amount up front. But I think I have my cash value at like 45, 50 now. Like you said, I got two options. I can take a loan from it, number one, or number two, I can take out the basis, which that was, that's a kind of new one to me. I'm more in the, what I'm doing is I'm taking a loan from it currently. And for you, that makes sense, right? I mean, you're, you're using it as an investor tool. There might come a time later in life where it makes sense to, to do the other way that I was talking about. I absolutely think it makes sense from an investment perspective to use loans. And then we're just going to teach people how to cash flow and in and out of the policy to literally generate more money. Right. And what you're talking about when you're doing the whole first and first out, when you get the, you're getting the basis out, that's more for end game strategy, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's exactly right. Right. Okay. Well, I haven't, I haven't actually even thought about that, but yeah, that that makes sense. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's another feature that's cool because a lot of times, you know, we end up, we end up working with a variety of different people, but one of the biggest segments of our market is we, we work with a lot of doctors and they're kind of trying, a lot of them want to be investors, but maybe aren't necessarily investors. And so the value proposition there is that we can get into the investment game and you can use this cash, this liquid money to do that. But if you don't, you don't have to feel bad about the fact that it's sitting in the policy because it's still going to generate a five to 6% tax-free return. And so again, it's one of those things where if I can come up, if I, if I can create the investment to go in tandem with it, then I'm going to create even more value. But again, five to 6% is a whole lot better than having money sit around in the bank and do nothing. Right. So when I, when I take a, a loan from my policy to get at that, that liquidity, I'm usually paying what, like about a 5% loan. Right. And I, and I think what's important to point out that four, five, 6% that I'm making in the policy, the dividend that's tax-free and the the loan amount that I'm paying that 5% say that's, that's a, in a way, if you're smart, you can call it a business expense, which in my case, I am. I'm using it to acquire more assets and run a business. That's tax deductible. So the original 4 5 6%, you take what, whatever your tax rate off of that, you know, maybe a 20 30% haircut off of that. You're, you're effectively making like a 5 6 7 8% return. And your loan amount, instead of it being 5%, it's kind of like a 4%. So that's how we're getting this delta. And that's the magic that's happening. There. Yeah. And that, and that really gets into the strategy side of things where, where we're using it in conjunction with our investments. And we're really literally able to create value in more than one place at the same time. And part of it is what you're talking about, where I may be paying interest on that loan, but I'm also continuing to earn. Because what happens is, is when I take a loan from my policy, that money that comes to me is not coming out of my cash value. It's coming to me from the general account of the insurance company. Quite literally, my cash value is all still there continuing to grow and, and earn the interest and dividend. And then I'm using that loan out to, to create value somewhere else. 
at, at the very least inside the policy, we call it a wash loan, right? So I'm basically paying the same interest as what I'm earning. And yet, when you break down the numbers, we actually create a, a positive arbitrage there. And what I mean by that is that as I'm cash flowing money off of the investment and putting that back into the policy, essentially paying off the loan, then I'm paying simple interest against the loan. But in, the money in my cash value is going to continue to grow at a compounding rate. So just to kind of illustrate the power of, of how that works, let me just let me just throw out some numbers. So let's just say that, that I've built up some cash value in my policy. I'm going to take a $100,000 loan, and I'm going to pay that back over the course of 20 years, right? The payback is somewhat arbitrary, but, but when we do this, we're going to tie the, tie the payback to the cash flow coming off the investment, right? So as I pay that loan back, in the end, I would have paid a total of about $60,000 in interest over those 20 years, okay? So then if we look at it on the other side, I have the, the cash value, that 100000 still sitting in my, in my cash value continuing to grow and compound over those 20 years. So by the end of the 20 years, my, I would have earned $165,000 of interest in that compounding policy. So in other words, I earned 165000 while I was paying 60000 Again, one of the values, even while that money is out, I'm using it in, in that investment inside the policy I'm getting a lot more value by, by the cash value that's growing versus the interest that I'm paying on the loan. This is all made possible through the loan provision, right? The, so we have this strategy of creating value in two places at once. We're going to use simple interest versus compound interest to our favor. So w one of the things I always tell people is it's, this isn't like rocket science. It's just math. If I understand the difference between compound interest and simple interest, I can use it in my favor because of the vehicle itself, right? And, and that's another thing that sometimes we neglect to do, but the actual banking concept can work by itself to some extent as a system. The life insurance piece of it comes in as a way to make it significantly more efficient because of the tax benefits, because of the predictable return and those types of things. But ultimately, it's really important to just understand that compound interest versus simple interest, even if we're talking about the exact same number, can work in our favor in a really, really significant way, especially as I look over time and as my numbers get bigger, as I'm investing more. Okay, so, I mean, Lane, is there any thoughts or questions on that before we before we kind of move into the next piece? No, I, th I think that's, um, I mean, that's really the reason why you're doing that. Yeah. It's, it's a very small delta between the two, but, you know, this is just kind of augments it all, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think I think what'll really drive this home is when here in just a few minutes we'll get into an example with numbers and they're really conservative numbers, right? So we really tried to say, okay, let's assume everything conservative and really we're not even bringing in all of the pieces, but nonetheless what'll what it'll do, I think it'll drive home just this idea that I can literally create more money just by doing the exact same thing I've been doing, but doing it in conjunction with the banking, the wealth forming the banking system. Yeah. Okay. And, and, and before we get to that strategy, you know, let's just kind of finish up here with sure. all like the bullet points we've got. So you've got, you know, all that stuff, like we mentioned, the tax-free, the liquidity, the loan provision, but you know, this is life insurance. So there's this death benefit that I'll let you guys kind of explain better than I. Um, sure. For some reason, like mine's had like an assisted living writer too. That yeah. Kind of yeah. That's a, I mean, Again, we're focusing on living benefits primarily, right? And and something like that could be tremendously valuable, especially down the road, right? 
So there's the two pieces here. We've got the life insurance death benefit. This can be valuable because life insurance is important, right? I, I mean, I look at my growing up, my dad passed away at 49. And luckily, he was smart enough to not just save, but own life insurance. And so my mom was able to continue to live the life that she was used to, right? So life insurance is a really powerful and good thing as a death benefit. So we don't want to completely skip over it. And really inside of the system, you just know that you're going to have a death benefit. It's always going to be higher than what the cash value is. And so there's a value to that death benefit. But really, when we talk about that 5 to 6% return, that's the, the cost of any death benefit is included in that. So that's the net result of everything that's happening. The other thing that you mentioned, which I think is really, which is a really powerful thing, is just this long-term care component. Historically, and I'll do this really quick, but historically, well, first off, long-term care insurance in its pure form has only been around for maybe 15, 20 years. The challenge that it has is that they didn't realize how to, or they didn't know how to price it. So a couple of challenges that, that go there. One, my, my premiums aren't locked, right? So it's just like health insurance in that way. I've met people who started out paying $300 a month and then they're 10, 12 years later and suddenly they're paying double that, right? Well, they didn't go in planning to be able to, to have to go up that high. So that's one of the challenges. And then the other problem or challenge with pure long-term care insurance is that it doesn't always pay out. So there's a real possibility that I could put a lot of money into this and potentially never get anything back out of it. So here, life, the life insurance industry has been proactive enough to say, hey, there's, a, there's room for us to do something in this space. What they have done is created for these policies a rider or an accelerated death benefit where you can literally use the death benefit while living to cover those types of ex expenses like assisted living. And really it's the same, the same format from a qualification standpoint as what you get in regular long-term care insurance. So from my view and from most of the people in the industry, the more efficient way to cover long-term care is just letting it be just a extra benefit on the life insurance side. Cause I know I'm going to get value out of it one way or another. Right. And I think, you know, you kind of mentioned it earlier, you know, a lot of doctors, I guess they have a lot of liability. They always get sued all the time. And this, when the money's in these policies, it's sort of untouchable. I mean, it definitely is, makes things a lot harder for creditors to go in there and, and get you. Yeah, that's a great, that's a really good point. So the creditor protection, like you said, we it's certainly not something we want to skip over because as an investor, my whole entire my goal is to grow my net worth, to grow my assets. And so one of the other value propositions that exists with life insurance is that it is creditor protected. Now, the caveat there is that it differs from state to state. Now, the cool thing is is we have the ability to do, you know, we can do planning to make it so that it's always completely creditor protected. But just understanding from a state on a state to state basis, there's going to be some level of creditor protection for those people that feel like that's an important thing. And, and that'll probably be a lot of people. We can do the things to make it completely creditor protected. So, again, if you're, you know, you run into financial issues or legal issues, those types of things, we've got this money in the policy that will be away and not and not accessible to creditors. So that's a great point. I'm glad you brought that up, Lane. I think we hit, we, we hit the hammer on all these bullet points here. Maybe I, let's make it come alive for the folks a little bit. And I'm going to be a little bit selfish here. And let's, let's say this guy, I, don't know, I have this friend that puts in $60,000 a year mm -hmm. into this policy as kind of our, our basis for our numbers as we kind of you know, walk through this. 
you guys can get your little Sharpie out and write on. The <laughs> we can do a lot for sure. I think what we're going to focus on. This guy he told me he got like $60,000 he put in the day one. And then he got cash value of like 45000 or something like that. Yeah. Like yeah. And that's pretty typical. So maybe just to hit on that point, we expect to have at least 75% of our cash value available from year right right from the time I put the money in. Sometimes it leans a little bit higher than that, but generally speaking, we're we're going to be over that 75% ratio. And that's really the mark of a policy that's been designed well, right? As long as if I have that much cash available year 1, then that's probably a pretty good policy. The but biggest yeah, that's factor a great point. is like how healthy you are, right? And I think a lot of guys they call it like preferred plus or preferred if you're I don't know why preferred is kind of like unhealthy or something like that. It's well, yeah, good. no, you're right. And and that can matter. What What's actually really cool about these types of policies is that it, it makes a relatively small impact. So even if someone, you know, we give them a standard rate or something like that, that policy is still going to grow really well. And the reason for that goes back to the idea that we are reducing the costs of the policy just as much as we can. Those, those kinds of health ratings make a, a big difference, a bigger difference in like the term world, but because of the way we're designing it and we're reducing the cost as much as we can anyway, the relative difference on the, on the health rating is, is going to be pretty small. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll second that, you know, a few of us in, in the mastermind club were kind of like, they got this thing about the same time, you know, different ages. One was like 50 years old. He wasn't a smoker, but I was like, well, I mean, so much for being way younger and healthier. You got pretty much got the same thing. So <laughs> yeah. I think a lot of guys, like they think, oh, I'm old. It's too late. I'm going to get killed on like, you know, the, the, the pricing. Yeah. yeah that's I, a good... I, I think because this one's like, it, it's not so much weighted on like the death benefit. Maybe that is that why it doesn't matter. Yeah. Or it doesn't yeah. factor in. That's yeah, exactly it. We've reduced that yeah. just as much as we can. Anyway, we'll, we'll do that whether you're, 20 or whether you're 60. And so uh, that that's why it, it really kind of normalizes levels the playing field quite a bit. Right. Yeah. And, and I think it is important. We have people all the time who come and say, does it make sense? I'm 60 years old and we'll run the numbers and show them and we can even compare with someone's. So at the end of the day, for most people, I would say there is an age where it becomes less favorable. Right. But really, if I'm below 60, then we can certainly put it together in a way that's going to look pretty similar regardless of what age you were. So yeah, that's a great point too. I'm glad you brought that up. Anything else you want to hit on from that standpoint, Lane? No, no, I think the, like, you know, it's just kind of do it like a typical speed yeah. and see how it's flow and how you actually use the thing. Yeah, that's great. So why don't we do this? Why don't we just jump into real life example of using wealth for in the banking in comparison to the bank. I have in our notes to make sure we talk about, how we use it, but I think we kind of covered it, right? So we talked about safety. We talked about the whole purpose of this is to create an opportunity fund. It's got to be liquid. We want to get a decent return while it's there. All of those things I think we already hit on pretty well. So my thought is let's jump into some numbers. I know a lot of your listeners are going to be pretty detail-oriented people, and so we'll jump into some numbers and give you a better idea of what the result of using the strategy ends up looking like. Perfect. Okay, so... For this example, we're, we're using a, a cash flow investor and we're saying, okay, here's somebody who is investing, is going to invest anyway. What's the relative difference between using their bank account as, the, as their opportunity fund versus using this kind of wealth formula banking policy? And so we're, we're going to kind of spell out the numbers. So 
to begin with, what we're going to say is that the initial investment is going to be $500,000. In this example, we're using real estate, but it really could apply to, to just about anything. Again, money goes in, and then the idea is that it's going to begin to kick off some cash flow. And we're going to take that cash flow, and we're going to put it back in the opportunity fund, let it grow, and then down the road, we'll, we'll another opportunity comes along, we're going to go take advantage of that invest and continue that cycle. Cash flow coming off the properties, the, the investments, reinvest that uh, later. And so on both sides, on wealth forming the banking and on the bank side, we're using the kind of apples to apples. We're showing 15% cash flow coming off of the investment. And then as we rebuild the opportunity fund, going back out and, and reinvesting that. Now, just before we get, we go in there, I just want to put a little thought in there. So when it pertains to the numbers and kind of what return we're projecting out, like that's one of those things where some people will think that 15% cash flow is too high and some people will think it's too low. But at the end of the day, it really is more about the overall context of what it's doing. So don't get caught up on whether you think we can generate that kind of return. We could easily put in 10% as that number and the concept still works the same. Yeah, yeah, sure. yeah, I think that's kind of fair. I mean, I think easily you should be able to stick it into something like HP and get 10, 12% a year at the, as your bronze level. And then I think 15% is a good silver level. And you know the syndications are like around 20. So that's kind yeah. of the gold standard. But yeah, I, I think that's a fair statement. Awesome. Perfect. Okay. As we kind of play this out over time, we're going to show investing in a total of, of four different investments and as you can see, when, when we fast forward to the 20 years out, we're creating an additional $800,000 worth of value by using the whole life policy, this, this wealth formula banking strategy versus the bank. It's all the different things we've talked about, right? It's the, it's the paying simple interest versus earning compound interest. It's, it's having more money go, to go into those later investments because it was growing along the way versus really not getting any growth inside of the, of the bank. And also, you know, we wanted to keep this simple, right? We did not include the value of, of the insurance that we're getting, right? Either on the death benefit side or on the, on the long-term care side or, or any of these other kind of peripheral, the tax-free component of it. This is just straight numbers run over this 20-year time frame. And so we end up with a, an $800,000 difference by using the whole life policy versus if we had just used the bank. I think what is not shown there is I call this thing called liquidity anxiety. Yeah. Uh, a lot of a lot of folks like myself, they get really anxious when they got like more than 10, 20 grand in the bank doing nothing. Yeah. 0.1%. So yeah. maybe it takes a little bit of stress off, you know, and at least you're making four or 5% or something like that. Yeah, no. And, and for, I mean, like I say, with the dividend history being what it is, we expect it's pretty rare that we have a policy we're creating that's under 5%. So five to six is a, is a good number. And like you said, from a, if I compared that to a vehicle that didn't have any tax benefits, it might equate to, you know, eight or 9%, just depending on what the, what tax bracket you're in. But the value there, I, I think it's a really critical one because like I say, you don't have to feel bad if you don't use it. And some people also, like you said, they get this anxiety and they feel like, Hey, I've got some money building up. I've got to use it. Well, there's probably good time. There's probably times where it makes sense to do exactly that and and get that money out to an investment. That's great. But time. But sometimes you know it might just make more sense to hold on to money, and we don't want it to be doing nothing for us. So here we have an alternative where we can grow that money, and then we can use it to you know we don't have to feel bad if we're if it's sitting there while we're waiting for a great deal instead of maybe taking 
one that we're not feeling so great about. Right. Sometimes the best deal you do is the one you don't do. So if you're kind of stressed out about having like 100, 200 grand just sitting there not doing anything, you might be make, make a dumb decision and go into a deal with that you haven't fully vetted or don't feel comfortable with. And you're going to stress about, about later. So you're trading one stress for another. And and then it kind of goes to the point where like, I'm always like, you know, maybe keep your day job because that allows you to play from an abundance standpoint. And that way you're not making hasty decisions. Yeah. And some people will, will start to feel the pressure of that. And they'll feel like, okay, instead of keeping that in the bank or in a safer place, let, let's invest it in the market or somewhere where I can get that growth. And the, the challenge there, if I'm using the a market-based account as my opportunity fund, well, uh, let's say a 2007 scenario comes around. I'm looking for the, the real estate opportunity out there, but there aren't many because the, the market is overinflated. Well, 2008 comes around and good news is there are all kinds of opportunities around. The bad news is I lost a bunch yeah, of money in the market. Most people don't have cash. Right. So I don't have as much to, to go out and invest. And so kind of like you're saying, you start to feel the pressure of that. You want to make your money work for you. And so one way or another, you're, you're probably m- moving into a, a, a poor decision. Whereas in this case, at the very least, I know it's it's in a place where it's going to continue to grow and churn and, and do its thing, whether I take the loan or not, whether I, I'm, I'm using it for the investments or not. Right. I mean, don't get me wrong. You you don't want to keep it in this thing forever. You want to kind of fund it a little bit. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And that's higher return investment. Yeah, no question. So it's it's nice to have the benefit of not having to feel bad. But it, and that, again, it's just about being able to make good decisions. And I think you nailed it with the, the liquidity anxiety concept. I think that's right on track. So maybe what I'll do, Lane, is I'll just really quickly talk about what it looks like when we meet with people generally, right? So we have a couple. We have a we have a couple other videos that we send to people for just individually. So once we meet with someone for the first time, we'll usually just get a basic idea of what their situation looks like. And I always tell people like we're never we're, we never want to try to fit a square peg into a round hole. This isn't right and perfect for everybody. For the right situations, it can work and be really great. So our job is to make sure that we're fitting the concepts and strategies that we use to the people. But what we'll generally do in that first meeting is fill it out, and then we'll send them what we call an illustration, which just basically shows the numbers, but it's more specific to their situation. And that way you have a chance to kind of digest, understand it. And then what we do at that point is we'll do, we'll do another call and just kind of get all the questions out of the way. One of the things that I, I really believe makes makes us different or unique in this space is that we really try to focus our time and energy on education. We're in a really unique position to have so many people that are constantly, that, that want to work with us that we don't really have any incentive at all to try to push people to make a decision that's not right for them. So anyway, I just wanted to kind of suggest this is the process that we use as we meet with people. We want it to be really educational low pressure or no pressure. And our goal is by the time you, you know, you've watched this and have met with us, that you have a feel, you have a feel of the concept and strategy to the point where you can say, Hey, this is something that could really make sense for me or no, it doesn't. And either one of those answers is totally okay with us. Right. And, and you don't have to go full bore into it. I mean, the, the yeah. way most people use these is you do a policy, you commit to a certain amount and, you know, five to seven years or something like that. And then you layer another one on top of that. And then you layer another one on top of that the next year. I mean, most people have what, like five, six, seven, eight policies all layering on top of each other. 
Yeah, that's a great point. You can absolutely do that. And and we'd rather see people start off conservatively and make sure that they're not overextending. Now, one point that we didn't hit on and we do hit on this in in our individual meetings and in the second in our the video that we'll send to individuals next. One of the things that we do here is we we make these policies incredibly flexible. We use a concept, I'm not going to get into detail, but we we call it a funding range which is just like it sounds. There's going to be a range of dollars that I can put in in a given year. As an example, in your case where you were putting in $60,000 for that first year, we would have created a funding range that's probably somewhere between on the low end 15 and on the high end 60. The reason I mention this is because some people feel like, hey, I'm committing to a number and I have to do exactly that year in and year out. The reality is that there is a whole bunch of flexibility and the reason for that has to do with the design, the structure. Because we're funding it so heavily right at the beginning, it gives us a chance to create significant flexibility to the point where I could, if, I, if I'm a business owner and had a bad year, I could skip a few years of making the contribution or I could just reduce it. But long and short of it is I wanted to just emphasize because I, I realized I didn't talk about that earlier in the conversation. Super flexible and normally you're going to have a funding range that's about for every dollar on the minimum side, about $3 on the maximum side, if that makes sense. All right. So, so here, here's what happened with uh, my friend's case again. Yeah, he got some good deals and he wasn't able to contribute the whole 60 grand next year, you know, because good deals came up. So yeah. we went down to the, about the 15 grand minimum. Say next year he sells some assets and he has a whole bunch of cash. He can stuff that thing with, not with 60, but what, 3X that? You can make up. So this, that's a perfect example. If, if in the second year, you, you just put the 15 in, in the next year, you're going to be able to max up to the 60, but you can also make up what you didn't contribute in the previous year. Oh, so so, so an additional 45. Yeah, an additional 45 on top of that. Yep. But can you, can you put another bunch off on top of that in your... It really has to do with the design and structure of the policy that we start with, right? So if I use an example of 15000 being my initial minimum contribution, then I'm going to have a maximum up to 60000 If I go over that $60,000 number in a given year, then we run into, we change the taxation of the strategy. And so we want to avoid that. Again, it's for, but about for every dollar that's on my minimum, I'm going to have three. So if my policy let's say that I'm a million dollar earner and I want to be able to 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 put in 200 grand a year, I might create a funding range that's anywhere between 40 or 50 and all the way up to 200. So yeah, I, I think you're on the right track there, Lane. There is opportunity to do about three times the minimum every year. And like Rod said, if we miss something, we can catch up on it, but we don't have to, right? We can just go back and start, you know, making whatever contribution makes sense. And that's one of the things I think that most people don't realize, right? You think of life insurance or really anything else. We think, okay, I'm, if I have a, a payment, I have to be exactly on that payment. Well, there really is a lot of flexibility inside of this strategy, and there kind of has to be, right? Like we're dealing with business owners often. We're dealing with investors often. And so we, have, we need to make sure that it works regardless of an individual situation. Make sure that they have the flexibility to accomplish what they need to. Okay, okay. That, I think that's where I was kind of off a little bit. So you want to set that high end at your max. And yeah, you got it. And yeah. and then you can pile on top of that, right? So let's say that I start with $10,000 as my maximum, but maybe I get a raise or my investments are going well. 
And then I could always stack another policy on top of that where I create another 10 grand or maybe it's 20 grand. It's, it's really one of those things that's, again, very flexible and we can build it and will build it to fit the person that we're talking with. Right. And then let's talk a little bit about funding terms because in this particular one, it was like you're committing to 60 grand every year. I could put in 15 for like, like you said, you can do the minimum of 25% or approximately. Yeah. But it's usually the funding window of like, you got to commit to six years or something like that, or plus or minus a year. So what's the, the norm? Yeah. Norm? So we, our rule of thumb on that is whatever the minimum is that we need to plan on funding at least 12 times that. If we fund 12 times that over whatever period of time that is, right? Because it is flexible. Right. So it could happen in three years, yep. right? I could fund it for... So what we tell people, like Rod's saying here, is we can fund it all in three years and be totally done three, four years and never put another dollar into it and work great. Yeah, as you have the flexibility. Yeah, yeah you, I like that. taking advantage of that flexibility. You, you, it may take you five years to get there, and that's fine, right? But but that's kind of the I'm, rule of thumb is 12 times. I've never heard of that before, but that makes perfect sense now that I hear it. Yeah, well, again, think of it this way. Like I Sometimes, again, we have to back the curtain up a little bit and just think of it really logically. What I'm doing, essentially is I'm paying four times my premium in the first year and the second year, right? So I have the ability in any given year to, to fund it four times. Well, if I funded four times my premium, well, then that means I could, if I didn't, if I couldn't make a contribution for the next four years, my policy would still be intact because the minimum requirement would be 15. Well, what happens is once we get to that 12-year mark, then we're at a point, 12, year of the, 12 years of the, of the minimum mark, then I'm at a place where the policy is easily generating enough cash value through the dividend and through the guaranteed interest to more than cover the policy, any cost, and keep it growing at, at the 5 to 6% return number that we talk about. Right. So at that point, you don't contribute anything more and you're kind of in nirvana status. Then Well, that. that's the cool thing. You totally, yeah, you absolutely can do that. Or you could continue to contribute to it, right? The nice thing is, is I have the benefit of being able to say, hey, I could stop this after I've done it for three or four years, or I could keep doing it for 20, right? Like there's super, again, we wanted to focus on flexibility. And that's part of the reason that we use the, the companies that we do. We want to make sure that we're dealing with companies who are stable, who have been around for a long time, have a good track record, that produce a consistent and predictable return, but also that allow us to be flexible with the policy. And there are companies, good companies, who just don't have a lot of flexibility. And so we'll generally navigate to places where we can get both that value from a strong underlying company along with the flexibility to be able to do to to do the things that we're talking about right okay yeah yeah i mean obviously this isn't free and it, it is there's a life insurance component to it yes and here's the deal guys like a lot of the fees are front loaded so you're going to take a hit to the you know, you're going to stick in 60, but you're only going to get access to about 45 of it, or yep. maybe even a little less. Like what, what's the, what are the general rules, the percentages? Yeah, it's but, usually 75 to 80% in the policies that we use. If someone was much older, it might, it might skew a little bit below that. If they're young and super healthy, it might be 82%. But basically, we're inside that 75 to 80%. So your example 60,000 goes in, 45,000 I'd have access to. And maybe um, I can hit on the feet, the cost structure. I always tell people like there's a, obviously there's a strong value proposition that exists by using the strategy. And yet you have to go, there's a pain point, right? 
and that's the first year. Really, that's where the great majority of fees are. And there's and the reason for that is because they're you know you're starting up the policy. There's the cost of insurance, and then there's paying guys like us who actually design and structure and do this for a living. So those three things are happening. And again, what we do is we reduce the cost, but there's still some costs that exist. And so that pain point is basically what it costs to get into it. But I want to also emphasize that when we're talking about generating a five to six percent return, that isn't that's net of cost, right? So anyway, I, I, but I think what you're saying is absolutely critical, and we want people to know going in that I'm not going to have access to the full cash value in year one. Once I get a few years down the road, then my cash will have surpassed what I've put in, and I have access to the full amount. But initially, there is going to be that that drop off, and then over the long term, we tell people to expect that will be somewhere between half a percent and a percent as a total fee. I use that number even though it doesn't necessarily fit exactly with life insurance, but most people are familiar with like brokerage accounts. And if I told you, hey, I'm gonna, we've got this brokerage account here, we're gonna keep it as low fees as possible. If I said, can I get into that for 50 basis points or, or 0.5%, most people would feel like that's a really good fee structure, right? So life insurance, upfront, heavy in the, it's a higher cost, over the long term, we're going to be under one percent, and generally even closer to half a percent. Is that is yeah, that helpful, so, Lane? Yeah. So let's let's kind of put it to real numbers here. So in that scenario, sixty thousand dollars, you're getting access to that for forty five thousand dollars. That day one, you can kind of take a loan from yourself mm-hmm, and right. get access to forty five thousand. But that as time goes away. And from my experience, year three, you're putting in the six, another $60,000 and you're kind of getting more like 90% of that out. And then by the time year six comes around, it's basically nothing. So if you're kind of envisioning this on a chart, you're seeing the fees going from like 25% the first year, then 10%, then third year three, and then zero. So it phases out in pretty quickly. But you got it. And what we'll do is we'll make sure that each person we visit with gets a copy that they can look at and say, okay, what are the, what is the cost? What is the cash value? How's it going to grow? And so we'll be really transparent about everything that's happening in the policy and get into as much detail on those types of things as, as uh, any person wants to. And it's going to be inclusive yeah. of, of all costs, right? There's there's no like additional that you have to pay us at any point or anything like that, right? It's 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 all inclusive. What you see is what you net result of all of those things, right? I mean, it, it it's something I do for my myself personally. So I think that's that's the only downside is that you're taking that liquidity hit in year one, two, and a little bit of maybe three. After that, it's pretty much nothing. Yeah, so. I think that's a. I think you nailed it. That's really. I think that's important, and that's the. That is the biggest reason why some people don't. So we know it's over the long term an incredibly successful strategy, but we always understand that you know sometimes it's a matter of timing or whatever. And our goal is just to try to educate, help people understand it, and so pointing that out, I think, is really important. Yeah, and, and you know, I think this is where like a lot of my coaching clients, like you know, we put together a holistic plan where. You know, life insurance is usually anywhere from like, it's a, it's a minority of the, where we stick all the money, especially if there's, you know, every situation is a little different, right? You know, I have some clients that are like, they got a $2 million of liquidity and it's like, oh my God, like, what do we put their money in? It's like, sure. well, 
we're not going to put all that money in one place. So life insurance is a good intermediary into that time. But of course, you don't want to put too much, right? It's just well. It's, so it's again, every like, situation is different, is what yeah, I'm saying. Both. I think I think that's 100 percent true, right? I can get away with flowing money, a lot of money through my policy if I want to, right? But I think what you're saying is also true. For some people, it's more of just getting a comfort level initially. But what we find is that over time, as people use the strategy, they'll flow the majority of their investment money through it. But there's going to be other monies that exist in people's world. So it's not, we're certainly not expecting that you're going to catch, capture every dollar into the policy. But for that money that I'm trying to set aside and build up for investment purposes, that's really where that goes through. And so again, it might be if I'm a, if I'm a $200,000 earner and 20% of my, I'm trying to set aside 20% of my income for investment purposes, well, I might end up putting 40 grand a year in or something like that, right? And and really that's going to apply across the board. Like you said, we want to build it and make sure it's it fits for each person that we talk to. Yeah, a couple of examples I, I kind of comes to mind in my like just countless of calls with folks. You know, one person, you know, they, they may not they may be having like two, three, four hundred thousand dollars of liquidity, not not too much. But this whole world of alternative investing has kind of piqued their interest recently. And they're still another year, 18 months away from even investing. Like there's such, there's super noobs about this stuff. Sure. So what I would suggest for a lot of those people is like, look, like this life insurance, you pay a lot of the fees up front and it takes a while to kind of charge up in a way. So it might be good to kind of start off with the life insurance thing. And as you're learning, as you're consuming countless audios and podcasts and books and going through all, going to the stage, we're actually going on forums and stuff like that, because eventually everybody grows out of that. Sure. You're, you're letting the, the policy charge up. So that's a good scenario I see. The second scenario is like that, you know, that person with just a lot of liquidity and especially like, you know, those doctors out there with that high liability, it's another good place of stuffing it. But at the end of the day, guys, it's like, just sign up for an hour of coaching with me. I usually can figure this stuff, point you right in direction, like three minutes. And it's not as going to, it's not going to be good as if you sign up for the full coaching package, but it's like, come on guys, like don't be cheap on this stuff. And I, I'm not a fan of, you know, that kind of stuff like coaching and stuff like that and paying for it but i'm like man don't be a bonehead guys like seriously <laughs> <laughs> right it's all about i mean really the difference between people who are wealthy and people who aren't has generally has to do with decision making and so i'm i mean i agree with you i think right. there's a I mean, place Rod, for money Rod and christian are the experts i mean they'll talk your ear off on this like EIUL, IUL is like the difference between them. And I don't really, you guys have like this white sheet. I don't really understand it, to be honest. <laughs> but what I do know is like little bigger picture and like, yeah. hey, this kind of deal flow we have coming and how to kind of fit it in in that holistic picture. Like for me personally, I like to use this in terms of like a place, I call it the on deck circle. So me as an investor, I invest in private placements and syndications that usually have minimum investments of $50,000. So I call each $50,000 stack of money as a bullet. Mm -hmm. So I always like to have one, at least one or two bullets in the chamber because if a deal comes up, 
you know, it just always happens where another deal, good deal comes up a few weeks later, or a couple of weeks later. So what I want to be able to do is take a loan from my insurance policy with using this thing and be able to have that next one ready to go. I always have that third bullet stashed around somewhere in secret, but it's, you know, the first bullet and the second bullet aren't in, aren't in a checking account. I got nothing in a checking account. Yeah, I think it's good strategy. And like like you said, we'll, we'll uh, make sure that we're helping people to build out the same kind of strategy that already fits for you. So it's good advice. Yeah. Anything we miss, I think, guys, um, I mean, I, I, I think at the end of the day, I think, I mean, this is what the wealthy people do. And like, I, I believe in the strategy. The only thing you have to weigh is like, you know, the, the fees up front. And if you got to kind of balance it with your liquidity, like I think a situation where this may or may not work is that guy with has no money and like, sure. You know, he needs the, he needs like 10, 20 grand to buy that first rental property. You know, it's, it's like, dude, like this stuff will come later when you get some money, but everybody else, I mean, this makes total sense to me. I like it. Well, I think you summed it up. Well, I don't think I have uh, anything else to add other than that. We'll, you know, we'll look forward to talking to some of you and, and like you say, we'll kind of try to make it fit your situation and focus on understanding the concept better so you, so you can decide if it's something that makes sense. All right, guys. Hope you guys enjoyed this um, Opportunity Fund episode. A lot of stuff here. Again, if you guys need me to go over um, a plan with you, maybe sign up for a a la carte coaching session where you just pay per hour. Um, I'll probably have you fill out a personal financial sheet so I can really see what you got working on all your IRAs, all your uh, liquidity, your job, all your investments. Um, that way I can, you know, a lot of times what I'll do from the calls, I'll just shoot from the hip. I don't really have the big picture, but um, you know, if you guys are going to pay to play in a sense, um, I'm going to step my game up and I'm going to need that information to do so. Um, but if not uh, sign up for that Hui Do pipeline club and uh, stay tuned for the next quarterly investor webinar slash letter and uh, tell your friends about it. And we'll see you guys in 2019. Bye. Have you heard of the multifamily investor nation summit coming up on January 17th through the 19th? It's a three day information packed event for multifamily investors with over 1000 attendees and over 50 speakers. You will hear from experts about finding deals, raising capital, underwriting strategies, selecting markets, and so much more. Go to apartmentevent.com to grab your ticket and use the promo code lane L A N E to get $100 off. Whether you are new to multifamily investing or a seasoned investor, you do not want to miss this event. Start 2019 off right. Join me at the Multifamily Investor Nation Summit. Visit apartmentevent.com. This website offers very general information concerning real estate for investment purposes. Every investor situation is unique. Always seek the services of licensed third-party appraisers and inspectors to verify the value and condition of any property you intend to purchase. Use the services of professional title and escrow companies and licensed tax, investment, and or legal advisor before relying on any information contained herein. Information is not guaranteed as in every investment there is risk. The content found here is just my opinion and things change and I reserve the right to change my mind. Above all else, do your own analysis and think for yourself because in the end, you are the only person who is going to look out for your best interests.